0: Think, think, Podcast. podcast. Welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Phantom Troublemaker, and I am pleased to be here to talk about a new movie that is going to be coming out very soon, hopefully near your neck of the woods on your local digital provider or whatever the case may be. But before I get to that, I want to remind you that you can find the Needless Things Podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, and at NeedlessThingsSite.com, where we have the podcast every single Friday and five days a week pop culture commentary, original content from myself and the rest of the Needless Things regulars. All right, so before I get to anything else, two months from now, from this very day, It is going to be time for Joe Lanta and the Great Atlanta Toy Convention. This is a big deal. This thing is getting bigger and bigger every single year. It's at the Marriott Century Center, which is at 2000 Century Center Boulevard. And it's so cool because it's all toys, and you know that's my thing. We talk about everything here on the show. We talk about everything pop culture on the website. But toys are my first and greatest passion. And this is a toy convention, but they're expanding beyond that. Uh, they have all kinds of great special guests. They have costume contests. They have panels, including my Needless Things Toy Stories panel. I will be bringing it to Joe Lanta and the Great Atlanta Toy Convention this year, Sunday at 2 p.m. And it's going to be awesome. Uh, I already have two guests lined up for it. And as always, I encourage the audience to bring their own toys, as always. Like, I've done this more than once before. But, as as happened last time, and as I will continue to encourage people to do, uh, the audience, I want you guys to, to bring your toys as well and share your stories and be part of the show. Because it will be recorded to be part of the Needless Things podcast. But, go to joelanta.org. And check out the website they don't have everything updated yet uh, but I can tell you you're gonna find more toy vendors here in one spot over one weekend than you will anywhere else in the southeast it's an amazing show with lots of really cool people uh, wanting to talk about toys wanting to sell you toys so it's 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 an awesome time you can also get on Facebook and And there's an event set up now for Joe Lanta and the Great Atlanta Toy Convention uh, 2016. Check that out. Sign up for it. Get more information there. They have general admission for the 12th and 13th. They have special package holders for March 11th. But just mark that weekend off. You're going to be busy doing toy stuff. All right. Moving on. I watched a couple of movies on my days off here, the last couple of days. Uh, We watched Green Inferno again. Oh, important news. I was finally able to take Mrs. Troublemaker to see Star Wars The Force Awakens. And I, I honestly right now can't remember if that was before or after I recorded the last episode. But if I didn't mention it, she loved it. She had a lot of fun, which I'll be honest, I was a little concerned about because we don't always love the same things, which I'm glad for because it'd be really boring. What would we talk about? Uh, but she dug it. She did. And and we had conversations about it, interesting conversations about it. So that was great. Uh, we also watched The Green Inferno last night. She had not seen that either. Uh, it's really not fair because I get to see a lot of stuff she doesn't because we don't have really anybody to watch our son and our dogs while we do stuff so there are a lot of times where I end up doing stuff without her, and she does a, you know, she does plenty of stuff without me. She, she hangs out with her friends and, and does whatever. you know. We, we each have our time. It's just hard for us to have time out of the house together. But we watched Green Inferno. We both had a blast watching it. I actually liked it a little bit better the second time because my expectations uh, were not quite at the level they were when I saw it in the theater, so I was able to kind of relax and have more fun with it. And then I watched The Quick and the Dead, for I don't even know how many times I've watched that I've owned it for years and years now and it's one of my favorite Sam Raimi movies if you're not familiar with it it stars Russell Crowe and Sharon Stone and Gene Hackman and Leonardo DiCaprio and a lot of a lot of Raimi regulars it's a fantastic western very stylized but also very much in the vein of you know you could watch it in Silverado and uh Tombstone, uh, you know, it it would fit in. It's it's a little more stylized than those because Sam Raimi did it, but it's a cool western. It's not you know, it's not Wild Wild West. It's not that. So I highly recommend it if you haven't watched it. I thoroughly enjoyed watching it again. It was one of those things we were sitting there, and it came on TV, and I just put it on while I was looking for something else to watch, and that became the thing that we watched, and we both sat there and watched it and had a good time. So it's fun to revisit old movies. Uh, Some people don't like doing it as much I know unless it's something really good or remarkable uh Mrs. Troublemaker is not a fan of watching movies over and over again but you know I am Uh, and if it's something like that that I love that has a certain magic to it the way that almost every Sam Raimi movie does then I can revisit it over and over again so There you go. There are a couple little movie recommendations. If you hadn't seen them, if you're a fan of of human horror, Green Inferno is great. If you're a fan of action and quickness and wit and certainly westerns, which right now I'm a big fan of westerns because, as I'm pretty sure I mentioned last time, The Hateful Eight is incredible. I can't wait to see it again. But it has given me a thirst for westerns, which is fortunate because I own... I own as many as I I need to, like enough to get this probably out of my system a little bit. Uh, I watched Once Upon a Time in the West a couple weeks ago, which I'd never seen before. And, man, that was something else. Peter Fonda is a villain in that is just dastardly. And I I own the Eastwood uh, spaghetti westerns. I've got Silverado. I've got Tombstone. You know, I've I've got a lot of the modern westerns, some of the spaghetti westerns. I don't have. You know, my grandfather loved John Wayne, the war movies, the westerns, particularly the westerns. I think. uh, Unfortunately, he passed away when I was a young teenager, so I I never really got to know him as a grown-up in any way, which I regret very much. It's it's one of the one of those things that will make me sad throughout my life because you know there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, but I do know that he loved John Wayne. I do know that as much as my grandmother uh, got me into horror, at some point or other, he would have shared westerns with me. But I just haven't, uh, I, I think it's too heavy for me. Every once in a while I've tried to watch John Wayne uh, when true grit. Uh, when the the, the Cohen brothers version of true grit came out i i watched it i wanted to go back and watch the the John Wayne version and i i couldn't i just couldn't do it i there's a there's a heaviness there with uh with john wayne which which is kind of unfortunate because he was in a remarkable number of movies a lot of them were Very, very good, regardless of of John Wayne being who he was, the superstar that he was. He made some great movies, and I don't think I can handle them because it's, you know, it's one of those things. You see John Wayne, and and I I just think Papa. so... You know, probably won't be revisiting those. But like I said, I've got a Western bug right now. I want to watch a bunch of them. And that's what I'm doing in between watching old Royal Rumbles. And let me just tell you guys, I want to talk wrestling so bad I can't stand it. Because WWE is in a crazy state of flux right now. But I am sparing those of you who do not enjoy the wrestling talk. I will not bring it into the regular shows. But next week will be our very special needless things podcast royal rumble pre-show where it will be all wrestling if we go three hours we go three hours but i've got a great uh, different panel set up it's it's guys that have been on before but not together and not talking about wrestling in this way so it's going to be a really fun different conversation uh, I'm, I'm excited about it. I can't wait to talk. It's some smart guys who know their wrestling stuff, so it's going to be good. Today's episode is about the movie Stopper The Rise and Fall of the Bastard Squad, which is a documentary about the punk rock band Stopper and the trials and tribulations and joys that they experienced in their brief time uh, on the way to the top, which they never quite made. It's a wonderful documentary made by a friend of mine named Jason Wilson, who who is a professional in the field of documentaries. He helmed this whole thing. He lived a good portion of it literally back in the day, and it's moving. Uh, I watched it earlier tonight before I talked to Jason, and it, it's a powerful film, not even from the – because I didn't know these guys all that well back then. Uh, I know a couple of them. If you remember Corey from The Iceberg from probably two years ago, I think. I I did a spoken word without the mask, and it was an event called The Iceberg that Corey Byram held when he was in town, and it's one of my favorite things that I've ever had the opportunity to do. And uh, So I've gotten to know Corey a bit. I know Jason, but most of the guys in the documentary I really don't know very well. I wasn't... As heavy into that punk scene as any of them were, I was just kind of aware. So it was powerful. It was just—it was one of those things where I was watching this amazing documentary, and then and I mentioned this when I'm talking to Jason uh, in this interview. I'm watching this amazing documentary, and then every once in a while, somebody I know pops in, and I'm like, "What are you, What are they doing in this?" And, and it's like, "Oh, right, yeah, they're they're part of it." So. Before we get to the talk with Jason, I want to play you some Stopper to put you in the mood for a little punk, to give you an idea of the music that we're going to be talking about. I highly recommend you follow Stopper, the Rise and Fall of the Bastard Squad. You can go to Reverb Nation and see the trailer. You can get on Facebook and check out the Facebook page, and hopefully it will be hitting Netflix or Hulu or, or you know, one of those providers at some point soon, so you guys can all check it out, because it's an amazing film, uh, very uh, it's it's a tough watch in places. There's some heavy stuff in there, but it's all powerful, and it's all great. Well, well done documentary. But before we get to that, here's Stopper. I want you to get a feel for the boys and the music that they played. And I asked Wilson, uh, Jason, known more colloquially as Wilson, I asked Wilson for a couple of songs, and he happened to send along one that I, I know a little better than others. It's called Compromise. And... It's going to give you a good idea stopper. So here it is. All I don't I, I don't waste like I don't to way to
1: I, hate you. I don't wanna come fight, but I'm on all the brothers what I thought from I don't wanna come fight, for you bring no will, I don't wanna come fight Only C in me cap I don't wanna come fight, for T bring no will, I don't wanna come fight
0: All right, so I'm sitting here with Jason C. Wilson, Mm. uh, a man of note. Here's what happened, and I was too embarrassed to tell you this earlier. All Uh, right. You you sent me the link to the movie, Mm -hmm. and you said, and and the movie we're discussing, by the way, for the listeners, because we we really shouldn't leave the listeners out.
1: No, well, we should try not to, but...
0: Uh, The movie is Stopper, The Rise and Fall of the Bastard Squad, which is a documentary that you helmed and put together and devoted years of your life to. And you sent me, earlier tonight, before we talked, you sent me a link saying, oh, I realized I hadn't sent you a link to the movie. Here it is if you want to kind of skim over it or check it out or whatever. Uh, and, and God forbid, do some research for your show. Mm. And so I sat down and I watched it. What I did not say is, yeah, you actually did send me the link like three months ago. And I just never got around to watching it because I'm a <laughs> shitty person.
1: <laughs> That's okay because this is a... I've continued editing this damn thing up until recently, so (laughs) the version you're seeing is the latest version I finished I believe in the beginning of December so, yeah, it's for the best, it all worked out.
0: Well, and at what point, it's, especially with something like a documentary the editing process has got to be really difficult because, I mean, you're never really going to feel like it's finished, are you?
1: No, I'm going to, uh, my plan is to go back and uh, utilize the um, the power of the digital world, you know, as far as we'll come with special effects. I'm going to go back and make uh, make subtle changes, <laughs> add wampas and whatnot, um, Throwing, you know, make sure that Shoemate shoots first, those kinds of little details, throw, you know. Throw because- in that
0: cut scene with Jabba the Hutt.
1: Right, right. Uh, that's that's my plan. I mean, it's a living, breathing organism until Disney buys it.
0: <laughs> right, at which point they will improve upon it and make lots more money than you ever did. Mm, fingers crossed. Uh, so, since we started at the end, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, I know you from 95-ish, 6-ish, mm-hmm. but I never got into the South Atlanta punk scene as much because I, I really just kind of dip my toes in with like the pig dogs and and smedley and stuff like that right i i did i didn't get as deep in as a lot of guys did it was just kind of like oh this is really cool i enjoy this music but uh you guys had around fayetteville a scene a full scene which we've discussed before on the podcast on an episode that shall never air good but
1: <laughs> I, I like the sound of that
0: but uh you were involved uh, in two, to me, you know, being from Atlanta, two major bands, Round Ear Spock and Stopper, and Stopper is kind of what we're here to talk about today. Right. How, watching the documentary, there's no point in covering all the ground because we want everybody to watch the documentary, but, I mean, obviously this is a huge part of your life, a big influence on everything that you've done, but back in the day... Being in a punk band like that, mm-hmm. what was the level of satisfaction versus frustration versus partying versus work versus being creative? Like, there's so many things that go into working with a group of people. Mm-hmm. What What was the vibe?
1: Well, um, I mean, you have to understand that my first band was Round Ear Spock. That was the first one I was involved in, and we had a... Uh, strict ground rule of taking nothing seriously and the second you acted like you gave a shit vince who originally was the drummer um and went on to uh be in the hinkley's uh he would punch you if you acted like you gave a damn <laughs> so um so we learned really quick not to give a damn and that carried on through every band i was ever in uh i just never really gave a damn i i I gave a damn enough to learn the songs, I gave a damn enough to show up, um, because that's just me. Uh I you know, I, I'm kind of a dork in that way. Uh I know most people don't seem to adhere to uh crazy things like clocks and whatnot in this day and age, but um I do like to be on time for things and show up for shit. And so for me it was just I show up to where people tell me to show up and I drink heavily and I go home while I'm drunk and I write a song. I and mean, you know, it was just it was it was kind of party time. I didn't take it too serious. Um I sensed that it could do more if I put an ounce of effort in, but every time it felt like you were getting close to the gold ring, um you know, it slipped away somehow. We we somehow pissed the opportunity away. So, you know,
0: um, uh, and that's interesting because I think one of the most – point because I did sit down and watch uh, the movie and mm-hmm. I I will at various points over the next hour or so be kissing your ass about it because I think it's fantastic. Well, thank you. Uh, one of the most poignant lines in the movie comes from you and it's when you're talking about Roundeer, Spock, and Stopper. And you say that Stopper keeps getting all these amazing opportunities and like you said, pissing them away and you kept yep. thinking like – Man, if, if this was Roundier Spock, we would make something of this. We would be doing something. This would lead to the next level, but we're not getting those opportunities. Right. And, and that is, that, that was one of several really powerful moments because anybody that pursues creative things knows that feeling.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's frustrating. Um, stopper, it was funny because Roundier Spock were the better performers in terms of musically. And they really had the better shot uh, in terms of the way the music world was going in the early to mid-90s. Round Spock was a little closer to what was the norm than Stopper was. Right. So it always felt like Spock should be doing more, but I think part of that was we didn't give a damn enough to pursue it. And Stopper had Ginny, and Stopper had opportunities, and Stopper uh, kind of had a, um, I wouldn't say a motivation, but I get a sense with a few of the bands that were in that scene that this felt more like their life to them. Like, this was a do-or-die kind of situation for right. a lot of the bands, and Stopper being one of them, I think, to some degree. And Spock never had that. All four of us were going to college, and I think out of the four members of Spock, I'm probably the... uh I was probably the, uh, the one that was the closest to really needing it to work because the other three guys are all exceptionally smart and I'm exceptionally dumb.
0: Don't you hate being that guy?
1: I know, right? I was the, (laughs) I was kind of the dipshit of the band. So I kind of needed it to work out a little more than the other guys did. And that's part of why, you know, I was in so many bands. I was in the tone deaf pig dogs. I was in the pins. I was in the menthol kings. Um, and you know, Spock and Stopper, I was in at the exact same time. And part of that was me just throwing shit at the wall and, you know, hoping something was going to work. Um, and like you said, yeah, it, it was, it was frustrating at times because you would, we would open for Rancid. Uh, that's one of the things that happens in the documentary. We opened for Rancid on the Outcome of the Wolves tour, which was huge.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, half the band showed up <laughs> wiped out on heroin, um, to, uh, very late for the show. And we barely got through the set. Like, we um, we did a sound check. It doesn't get mentioned in the documentary, but we did a sound check. And as we were doing it, we discovered that uh, there were certain songs that couldn't be played. So we had to strike them from the set list. And we ended up having to play a shorter set list than we normally would because we just – it. we knew it wasn't going to work. So anything that had a little bit of uh, – that was a little more complicated, we had to remove. So, well, I mean, there were those moments –
0: And on the note of musical style, uh, you mentioned that, that, uh, Spock was a little closer to what was in the mainstream at the time. This was in the mid-90s when, uh, you know, Green Day was the pop punk explosion. I mean, that, that was, they, they essentially came along and killed grunge. Right. And stuff like that lighter, more melodic stuff. Is what was hot, whereas Stopper was a little closer to, and, and I probably don't know the terminology like I once would have, but a little more like the street punk, like right uh, heroes like that that exactly. ang- that angrier, the angrier, not punk.
1: quite, not quite oi, right, but right. it was it was in line with that idea to some degree. It was almost somewhere between like the exploited, the germs, the subhumans. Um, somewhere in that level, I've always said that uh, Stopper was like the Atlanta version of the Germs, um, yeah. where really I don't know that people were into it for the music, and uh, they were more into it to watch us act like dumbasses on stage, and you know, and they got their money's worth usually.
0: Well, and anybody uh, listening that wants to check out Stopper can go to Reverb Nation, look up Stopper. There's some songs up there, and you, you can hear what we're talking about. But it, it is you're you're right uh, for for the mainstream punk at the time certainly the punk like cuz that encompasses a lot of different things but if you're going to see green day you're going to listen to songs and sing along if you're going to see stopper you are you're going for the atmosphere it's it's yeah, you're, not you're going to see what the hell is going to happen that night
1: you're going to to uh, put your fist in the air and you know you expect spikes to get you in the side at some point as somebody, you know, comes running by. You know what I mean? It's,
0: you're you're going to get you know spit I mean? on.
1: A violent, um, outpouring almost. You know yeah. what I mean? Everybody is there to get aggression out. Whereas, uh, Spock, my, uh, 14 year old son compares us to the descendants. Um, it was a little more, we were kind of clowns, but you know, we, on a good night, if we weren't too drunk, we, uh, we could, we could play. So, you know, we're a stopper. I mean, we could play, but we just, I don't know. We just didn't seem to want to. We'd get too fucked up.
0: Well, and you didn't, I mean, honestly, you didn't have to. Cause like you right. said, that's not what people were coming for. No, nobody's totally. at a stopper show going, oh, you fucked up that chord.
1: Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, I guess that's the beauty of it. And, you know, I could, I didn't, uh, the others were more into, drug culture than i was i was more into just having a beer i was uh i was a good times guy so you know i could get as drunk as i wanted and i could still perform at least half as well as the others you know what i mean i was never i don't ever remember a stopper show where i was too bad off and couldn't do it right right Uh, the songs were basic enough that i could always hang It, it was fine um the uh and there was a level of violence i mean another thing You gotta understand this documentary when I when I quote unquote finished it in December of two thousand fourteen was two and a half hours long. And, you know, it occurred to me that nobody's gonna sit through two hours and thirty minutes of uh of four dumbasses they've never met before. So, you know, (laughs) it got chopped out a lot, so a lot of things are gone now that were in it. But um but there was um there were a lot of clubs, things like that. We got kicked out of, you know, most of the clubs of Atlanta at some point. Uh, when we played our seven inch release party, uh, somebody got thrown through the glass, the front glass doors of the point and they banned us for being too violent. Um, the masquerade banned us at one point cause we did something to a microphone or something. I don't recall what it was. Well,
0: there is, uh, a st- there is a story and I, I don't think it's at the masquerade, but there's a story of, uh, Dave trying to shove a microphone up his ass.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, he, Dave went through a point, uh, Dave, the singer went through a point where, um, he would get really, uh, really high before the show and he kind of morphed into a Gigi Allen type character, which he hated hearing. And he did it two shows in a row. And there was a moment where, like, the first time it happened, everybody's like, oh my God, what the hell? And, you know, he really kind of had this meltdown on stage and, it, it was as much performance as it was just him losing his mind. I think. Sure. Um, he really he was kind of headed down a dark path at that point, and that was kind of towards the beginning of it. And um, he did it again at, within a week. We played a second show, and um, and I want to say that first time we opened for the Quincy Punks, and nobody remembers that. Nobody remembers the Quincy Punks playing after us because we kind of stole the show that night. He went so insane. But anyway, he did it a second time within the week, and um, and um everybody, like a ton of people showed up for that second show, because it got sure. to be this, oh, you know, look, it's the new G.G. Allen thing. Right. And he heard that a few times, and he hated that, so from then on, he he swore, I'm not getting naked, and I'm not doing anything like that anymore, because that's what they expect of me. And on the one hand, you kind of thought, well, hell, this is our ticket, man. He's going to start getting naked and going nuts. We're going yeah. to gain some notoriety, but... I respected him for saying, nah, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Fuck that. That's just what they want and I'm not giving it to them.
0: Right. He didn't want, he didn't want to be a gimmick.
1: Right. That's exactly right. Uh, which is kind of ironic in a way because David couldn't sing on time really. He, he could manage. And one of the tricks we had within the band was I would sing. I learned enough of the lyrics that if he started getting off, I would get on a mic and start singing backups and get him back on time again. And that started, uh, we had to do that with him. He had really bad rhythm. So, I mean, that was almost a gimmick that we had a singer that couldn't sing on time, <laughs> but and and yet we still opened the warp tour, so there's that <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we, which is I mean here's the thing with the documentary, you know you said, and you're right, uh, nobody a two and a half hour doc uh, about an Atlanta punk band that that almost hit it not gonna mm-hmm. hook anybody but once they start watching it i think it will hook anybody and I, and i think if you have the opportunity at some point you know I, I don't know uh where the doc might go at this point but i do think if you get the to the point where you've got a digital release or some kind of media release mm-hmm. i think if you throw that stuff in as extras or whatever i think people are going to be compelled cuz i'll tell you when it ended uh i wanted more i could have sat and listened to everybody talk more and it was so bizarre because I'm sitting here watching this documentary and thinking, like, I would watch this on Netflix. This is so crazy because here are people that I know, uh, some of them quite well, in this real film. Right. It, it was really strange. I, I, I haven't experienced anything like it before where it was, you know, you, you did a beautiful job of, of editing and of – uh, the, the music and everything, I mean, it, it really was, I sat down and I watched this thing and it's, it's, I, I mean, I, I couldn't, as a matter of fact, I would say it's a higher quality than some of the stuff I've watched on Netflix, but just sitting down and being like, oh wow, this is this really engrossing thing. And then all of a sudden you or Lumpy or Jay pop up and I'm like, what the fuck are they doing in this? <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, it I was really, sure. it, it was an interesting <laughs> and surreal feeling.
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny because, um, I've seen it a billion times, obviously. Sure, sure. But, um, but I, it is funny sometimes. I get sucked into it watching. You know, I don't sit and think, "Wow." wow. I, I sit and think, "Wow, this looks terrible." Uh, you know, just because it's me and I'm I'm going to right. judge everything I do harshly. Well, it's,
0: yeah, it's your baby. It's your
1: baby. right. But um, but I get engrossed in just the stories of it again, almost as if someone else made it. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. get into the technical yeah. end of it as much as just the listening to these uh, Ian tell a story or whatever it is and there is there's, there's got to be 6 to maybe not quite 8 but 6 to 8 hours of Ian just telling stories just on and on and on these stories that and there were a ton of great stories i hated to lose some stuff and some stuff i didn't even consider putting in but because the stories would go on so long they were great but they would just go on for right. too long
0: right well so, and ian uh hell of a storyteller he he's yes. one of the most captivating people that you talk to while you were editing this thing cuz this was my this is what I thought about while I was watching it uh i mean did you ever get cuz cuz a lot of it's rough a lot of it's yeah. really rough uh did that, i mean did that affect you sitting down i mean you lived through it obviously but right. sort of revisiting a lot of that stuff did did it affect you at any point like did you personally start to feel kind of like uh oh, feeling shitty
1: yeah well there were a lot of weird emotions with this whole thing because um on the one hand, there's the nostalgia of it, and this whole thing's kind of my love letter to the Atlanta scene. I mean, it, if you can't tell, it's, I devote a lot of time to just the Sombra Reptile and the other yeah. bands and stuff because, you know, I was, I feel like I was one of the bigger cheerleaders of that whole thing. I loved the whole scene. I thought it was great and should have gotten a little more recognition than it did. But, um, so I mean, there's that nostalgia part of it, but there's also, um, I, I do have to say there was an overwhelming sadness that would hit me sometimes. As I'm listening, especially when we get into David's situation and, you know, watching, because I remember David was a straight edge kid and he would uh, fuss at me for drinking and things like that, you know, when I was younger, when I was in high school and stuff, you know, oh God, yeah. would drink again, you know, busting my balls about it. And then, you know, to watch this transformation, which really picked up with Stopper. Second he joined Stopper, that's when it all began for him. And, you know, he... Me, him, and Vince were kind of a trio for a long time, and, you know, Vince didn't drink either, so it was kind of a weird thing to watch, and there was almost like, um, have you ever seen the documentary, Dig? I have not. There's there's a, uh, there's the two bands, the Dandy Warhols, and, um, shit, I forget the other name, the name of the other band, uh, but they're almost like the documentary is these two bands that kind of grew up together in a way. And we're kind of finding fame together, but one is kind of the good guys. They wear the white hat, you know, right. And the others right. Were kind of the more sinister. They, they did all the drugs and yeah. they drank a lot and all that. And that's almost what Spock and stopper did for a while. And there was kind of a little, there was a thing between lumpy and Dave for a while, uh, where they didn't get along. And that kind of stuff kind of, you know, brushed off on me because I was in the middle of it. I was in the two bands. Yeah. So, there's there was I spent a lot of time in this documentary juggling things trying not to make anybody into a villain as much you know what i mean because there were i could have shown a lot more and told a lot more about certain things right right but i didn't want to incriminate anybody as much so i kind of tried to be careful with that kind of
0: thing well and you did because it's a very human story i mean i i was you know, part, part fortunate, part smart in that I never ended up in the darker, uh, corners of the scene or, you know, right. any, cause I, I worked at the masquerade for a couple of years. I had tons of opportunities to, to make bad decisions. Uh, <laughs> and, and I saw people make bad decisions sometimes right. in the same room as me. Right. Uh, you know, so I, you know, I, I never had to deal with that, but it's a human story. We all know people. Who have done the wrong thing, who have, you know, you, you see the turning point sometimes mm-hmm. where it's like, fuck, if he hadn't, if he hadn't done that then, everything else right. would have been different. And, and you, you know, like you say, when Dave joined up with Stopper, did it seem almost like an identity thing? Cause that's what in watching it, because there was a discussion of, of the straight edge, uh, early on. And then once he's with Stopper, it becomes pills, drugs, you know, everything. And it seems like it almost was sort of an identity like, oh, okay, I found this thing and this is who I need to be now.
1: I think that, that there may be a small part of it that, yeah, yeah, you're right. I think that is a small part of it. I think that, I think what David really needed was somebody to push him in that direction. I think he, I think he always had it in him. I think that he didn't find that with us though when he ran around with me and jay and vince and lumpy um he didn't find that uh you know somebody there to introduce him to uh the joys of lsd or whatever it was um so he i think once he got in with them that's that's what they did and that's uh that's when he started down that path and honestly it was it's almost like um he started out innocently enough, you know, he, he really, it was just smoking, you know, smoking some grass after school or sure. popping pills or whatever. and It really wasn't that big a deal, um, for a while. And, but once I got in the band, I joined, I guess, a year or so into the band. And once I got into the band, I really watched the transformation because he and Ian seemed to kind of team up and both go down that path together. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them had played and, you know, dabbled with stuff, but they really both seemed to just embrace that whole lifestyle of, you know, how high can I get and how, you know, how bad can I misbehave and all that? And which was highly entertaining at times, but at the same time, there were moments of, we played Dotties once and I actually sat down with them in the parking lot. Um, Ian's girlfriend at the time had mentioned that they were dabbling with heroin and, um, would I talk to them? And yeah. so I, you know, I sat down and tried to talk to them in the parking lot and, then, you know, hypocrite I am. I'm drunk as hell having this discussion. But um you know, trying to get through to them and Dave immediately just brushed me off and said, Well, I'm not doing anything, I don't know what she's talking about, and that's bullshit and he walked off. But Ian stayed and listened to me and he agreed that he would uh he would try to lay off. Well but you
0: know here's, he didn't <laughs> here's here's the thing about that situation. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody that watches this movie, you gotta keep in mind these are kids yeah. you, you yeah, were yeah. kids at the time we were kids at the time yeah and i I had uh, a couple of heart to hearts like that yeah but even with the best of intentions you're a kid and you're just not taking it seriously right I don't, you don't, I don't, think don't it's care totally that right I don't care how much you're talking to your buddy about hey maybe you shouldn't be doing that you really don't believe because you don't there's no gravity to your life yet. You're not sure. even, you're not even fucking 20. You, right. you don't, you don't know anything. And you, you know, there's that, oh, maybe this isn't great, but you really don't like that. We, we had no sense of consequence.
1: No, I didn't, I never saw it co- going in that direction. I never thought the things that eventually would happen. You know, I never, I never saw that. Coming. No, how could it's, you? That was shit that no.
0: happened. That was shit that happened in like movie of the week or on cops right. or something. Like th- this wasn't going to happen to your pals.
1: No, and I figured, you know, there'd be a, v- a point eventually down the road, twenty years or so, where we'd all look back and laugh on it. That's kind right, of the way right. I looked at it. Yes, at
0: the time. yes, exactly.
1: But that's you know, it's not the way it went. And there were there were plenty of good times too. We had a lot of fun in that band, and it was you know, it, it wasn't like a constant battle with drug abuse. I mean, honestly. Right. For me, that band, in the beginning, I was probably more into it than by the end. By the end, I was just showing up for a practice, showing up to do a gig, and that was that. I mean, it got to the point where we liked each other, but we didn't really like each other. You know what I mean? There was yeah, kind yeah. of a divide of me and Mark and Mark and, and, uh, Dave and Ian. We kind of, kind of divided up, and it, it's interesting that once the band split, Mark and I started a band, and those two went off and started a band.
0: Now, uh, did, uh, it, towards the end, was there still you know for you personally it mm-hmm. seems to me the band was like you said fractured to a certain right. extent but towards the end did you still have the feeling that like you know what if we hit the right thing if we do the right thing this could still happen
1: yes absolutely there were um, there were opportunities on the horizon when i quit uh i was the first one to uh just say fuck it and it just it hit a point
0: and that was just for reference that was april of 96 is that right april 13th 1996
1: okay. um and i remember that because it was my birthday and uh the really what happened and i didn't get into all this in the documentary as much there was a point where i discussed it and then i was like you know what it's too convoluted an explanation um one of the clubs we had declared we would not play anymore we um we, we had kind of this, uh, group of Nazi skinheads that wanted to kill us. We were getting death threats from them regularly. So you were doing something right. Yeah, exactly. That's how we felt <laughs> <thought> about it. <laughs> but it still, it, it got to where they started showing up at shows regularly. And it was getting to be a thing where there was gunplay and things like that. Uh, and so, and people and, were getting you
0: stabbed. Know Let me, I, I don't want to, mm-hmm. I don't want to interrupt your flow, but. Yeah. I think we do need to provide a frame of reference because yes. in 95 and 96 you know it, it it honestly in 2016 it sounds a little silly to be talking right. about Nazi skinheads right. but 20 years ago in Atlanta yeah I remember that was a going concern that was yeah. when you decided what show you were going to go to our are those guys going to be there? Is there going to be trouble? Mm -hmm. Is there going to be violence? Is there like, I didn't go to a business show. Yeah. Because it was, chances are it was going to be fucked up. I mean, that was a presence in Atlanta, uh, in that era. And and it sounds so stupid to say that now, but it's a fact. I mean, if you went to the wrong show, you could get fucked up. And that was something that even that young, I think we were conscious of.
1: Exactly. And it, you're right. It totally, it sounds ridiculous to yeah. even think that would be a consideration. I hadn't really thought of that until you just said that, but it's totally true. You don't see that element anymore, but yeah,
0: yeah, it's, it, it's insane to be, and, and yeah, yeah, until you mentioned it, I hadn't thought of it. And I was like, <laughs> holy shit, that, that was a thing that we, we dealt with that kind yeah. of idiocy.
1: It was, it was ridiculous. Um, and Stopper became kind of a focal point for them. Um, Because we had the stick we had the song "Nazios in no way we yeah, had stickers yeah. that had like the uh, swastika with a cross through it and uh, all that kind of stuff. And, so and I'm not he,
0: gonna I'm not gonna mention any specific bands mm-hmm. Uh, but there were a sect of punk bands in Atlanta that kind of walked that line like yeah, I, I always felt like they didn't yeah. outright claim membership with that. But they knew they were making money off of it, so mm-hmm. they kind of catered to that crowd a little bit. And I Absolutely. always thought that was shitty, and I could never, even though uh, I felt like they had musical chops, there were some guys that I just couldn't dig because I was like, man, you're letting these assholes come to your shows and right. feel like they're part of what you're doing. Right. And stopper was not having any of that shit, which I is why you guys had the problems, I'm assuming.
1: <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is. Um, well, it we had a we had a particular incident where uh, f- uh, shots were fired at a club, and instead of this club calling uh, calling the cops and all that, they hid the guy that was shooting in the back. So we uh, we declared, and this was a popular club. This wasn't one of the low rent ones, right? So we uh, we declared we don't play that club anymore. You know, that's that.
0: Yeah. And
1: yeah. what ended up happening was Seven Seconds came into town, and we were hooked in with um, I can't remember her name now, but she was a national booking agent, and she's the one uh, Stormy Shepherd. That was her name. And she was the one that would get us like the Agent Orange shows and uh Rancid and all these different things. She was the one that hook us hooked us up with these
0: larger touring acts. Yeah, you and- you guys found favor yeah. at one some- point with with <laughs> the right way with I guess Stormy Shepard. And yeah. and you worked some big shows. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that also was our ties with um Kike at the uh Somber Reptile and uh other people that were higher up I mean Mark and Jenny are just you know they're scene man they're all over the place everybody knows them everybody loves them they're yeah, great yeah so they to were this, to this day of too yeah absolutely so you know we we knew a lot of people and we were able to you know we were able to draw enough of a crowd that they they were willing to trust us to do these things i guess they knew we'd act a fool i guess and you know people would be entertained by that um but anyway, once this club declared, yeah, we're we're hiding this band or whatever and we we weren't going to play there anymore, she um she came to us saying 7 seconds is coming, we want you to open. Uh and I guess someone in the band agreed to that. And I said and I'm more stubborn I guess than the others are. Right, I said, "No, right. oh, no, we said no, we're not doing that." And they said uh and they said, "No, no, we are. She says we have to and you know, therefore we have to." And it kind of became a thing back and forth, nothing major. But then Mark calls me. Uh, I'm going to out Mark on this one because I didn't do it in the documentary. <laughs> Mark calls me up and says, I'm sick of this shit. I'm quitting the band. I've had it. This is bullshit. Oh, uh, wow. I, I don't like that they're making us uh, play this show and I don't want to. And, all that, and, you know, like I said, there was kind of a divide. Yeah. And I said, well, look, if you're leaving, I'm leaving with you. I'm not staying. Um I've kind of had my fill, too. I wasn't quite as, you know, angry about it. I just wasn't going to show up for the show. You yeah. know, fuck y'all. And... um so anyway uh that's on my birthday uh april 13th 1996 oh so and, that was it uh, yeah and i'm well i'm about to uh go out to eat or something and i get a phone call back within 15 minutes and it's ian and ian says hey man uh mark says that uh you quit the band i just want to let you know you know we're still friends and all okay it's cool and i was like well did Mark quit the band? He goes, No, no. But like, you tell you he's quitting? I was like, No, nah, that's cool. I'll talk to you later, man. And that was that. It was just that easy.
0: Oh <laughs> so, I mean, my gosh. Know, he's lovable.
1: Well, <laughs> I couldn't spe- I couldn't help but laugh, and he didn't last but a few more months yeah.
0: after I did. Mark Mark is the uh adorable punk rock teddy bear of Atlanta. Totally.
1: And he's the one that got me into punk rock back in the uh late eighties. Oh really? Yeah, he, I, uh, I met him in a, uh, construction class. I was a little skater kid and I knew that I, you know, I knew the skaters were listening to that stuff, but I didn't really have any access. I didn't know what to buy or what to do. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, here, here's the sex pistols. Never mind the bollocks here. Here's exploited, uh, live at the white house. And, you know, he, he was kind of encouraging my, my punk rockness. So that's kind of where it all started for me. So it, you know, then he disappeared and I ran back into him years later.
0: Um, Mentioning the, the, the club that you guys didn't want to play. Yes. One of the most heartbreaking portions of the doc. And, and I don't want to, well, you know what? People need to watch it anyway. Knowing what happens sure. in it doesn't change the fact that it's solid stuff, but it broke my heart, uh, how you put together all of the punk clubs closing. Because yeah, I, re- yeah. I remember that. And the, the one scene with the rec room, the somber reptile, all the clubs flashing up on the screen that closed probably like within a year of each other. It wasn't overnight that it went away, but man, all, all the venues went away. There was nowhere for the local guys or, or really even, you know, the, the, the smaller grade national acts to play in Atlanta anymore. And that is what killed it. And, and it, it bummed me out watching it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, It was good and bad for the scene to some degree because I think it flushed out a lot of bands and just gave a lot of, uh, new people a beginning. You know what I mean? They got to start fresh. Uh, Right. A lot of the old guys, we were kind of, uh, we were kind of shepherded out. And that, it is what it is. It also.
0: Well, and you know what? You're, you're right to an extent because it had sort of become kind of an is going to sound ridiculous. Talk about a bunch of punk kids, but it had become sort of an old boys club. Yes. Where, you know, if you didn't know this certain circle of people, you weren't going to get into these venues.
1: Right. And yeah. And that totally existed. And that was one thing that, um, I always tried to kind of fight against that. I, I tried to look out for smaller bands and I did a lot of booking and i tried to make sure that you know a smaller band like um that maybe didn't have quite as much of a following within the scene got i don't even want to mention names cuz i don't sure, <laughs> i don't want sure. somebody to hear it say i thought we were a bigger band hey. um, <laughs> right, right but i tried to uh, tried to get people in um I mean, the pig dogs I'll, I'll throw them out there. They're an example of, uh, the Samba Reptile would not give them any slot beyond like seven o'clock for a long time. They were always the opening band playing during daylight. And, um, I missed the majority of Agent Orange, uh, talking Kike and Big Dave into giving them a shot and letting them playing a, play a nine o'clock slot on a Saturday. And they, and I remember Kike's words, alright, but if they screw this up, it's on you. You, you did this. I don't, I don't know that they've got it in them.
0: And, and, and they at, they that point, at that and point, at that point where you like, what does that even mean?
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, you know what? To some degree, yeah, but at the same time, I'm still a kid and he's right. a grown up. Yeah,
0: yeah, so, yeah. You yeah.
1: know, even though I'm a snotty punk rocker and all, I'm thinking, well, gosh, am I going to get grounded? Like, yeah, you know, well, I, don't, I don't know what that means exactly, and, but.
0: And you have, you have at that point you've done the work to get into that position and you are like even more you know at this day and age you know around 40 years old Mm -hmm. we are you know i know what i'm capable of i know my value i know what i can do but when you're a kid and somebody has given you any kind of status whatsoever you're like holy shit yeah i've got to guard this and protect it
1: well yeah and that was I guess that might have been part of the fear with something like that, too, was, you know, I I was not at a point in my life where I had any level of responsibility ever, really, outside of, like, mowing my parents' grass or some shit, you know? (laughs) Right, right. That's as much responsibility as I had, making sure I could pay for the gas in my car. But um, these guys, I mean, I I owe everything that I do now to those guys back then. I mean, I learned how to organize things. I learned how to do things. And... That's all I do now is to organize stuff. I mean, shooting and editing and all that is all about organization and being able to talk to people and persuade them. And that was part of the booking thing was being able to persuade, negotiate, make this phone call. Okay, you can't do 9 o'clock. Can you do – you know, the back and forths. Uh, this is before emails and stuff existed. So – and these guys gave it to a kid, gave a kid responsibility like that. That, you know, says something for them. They, they got balls. I'll give them that. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. I wouldn't have turned anything over to me. I was an idiot.
0: <laughs> but you were the king of the idiots.
1: It's right. I was mayor of <laughs> morons.
0: <laughs> uh, so at, at the point where, you know, being a kid, I don't know if maybe you did really have a sense of it, but, was there a point with stopper where you did see like, you know, you had hope until the end, but was there a point where you would stop being surprised when it fell apart?
1: Yeah, I saw it coming pretty. I, I usually knew it, it can't work out. There's no way. And I'm, I'm kind of like that anyway. I'm kind of a realist to begin with. I, I, some people will call it negative. I call it, you know, just being realistic about things. Sure. Um, I don't like to get my hopes up too high for anything. So I, even the, amongst my clients in, you know, the video world, they're, uh, I, I've overheard a couple of them talking last week and one of them I've done stuff with for a while. The yeah, the new guy was, uh, that I just started dealing with was asking, well, how do you think it's going? I was like, well, it could be better, I guess. <laughs> and I walked away and the guy, uh, the other guy said, don't worry about it. It's what he does. He likes to undersell himself. That way he surprises you later. And that's kind of true. I don't like anybody to expect too much out of me. Yeah. So when I actually perform and, you know, pull it off, you're like, oh, wow, you you know, I could half-ass it, really, and you'd still be surprised because I'll, right. I'll tell you, yeah, I don't think this is going to work out. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's the kind of a- asshole I am, I guess. But, yeah, I mean, it it really was, with Stopper, nothing surprised me. And there were sometimes, you know what, sometimes things were not our own fault. When we open for fear – Big Dave, the owner of the Sombre Reptile, one of the two owners of the Sombre Reptile, was very drunk, and the doors were not even open yet. And he forced us to get on stage to play. <laughs> we, <laughs> we looked at it, and we were like, "Now you what?" But the, the doors aren't. It's seven o'clock. <laughs> He's like, "Guys," so he forces us up on stage, and he opens the doors as we're playing the first song. So. We're opening for Fear, which is great and exciting. And the the irony was there was a battle of the bands to fight for this position as the opening act, and um and we won. Uh, some would say by cheating, and then we got screwed by this whole thing by having to play to nobody because he put us on stage before you know
0: the doors <laughs> even opened. <laughs> now was, wait, I can't let that go. How yes. how did you win by cheating?
1: Well. Jenny and Mark worked at the Somber Reptile. Ah. Jenny was working the door. If I recall correctly, actually, she wasn't working that night, but she stood at the door. And the deal was, whenever you went to the Somber Reptile or any of those clubs back then, they would ask you, who are you here to see? Even if you were there to see everybody, right. you know, right. they, you would have to give them a band name. And that's how you got paid. They'd mark it off for, okay, 50 people came to see Stopper or whatever. And that's, you know, 50 times, I think it was $2 or something. We'd get $100 for the which, night.
0: Which I got to give the, the somber Reptile a lot of credit for doing that. That's, yeah. that's, that's kind of an above and beyond thing. And that's really looking out for the, the artists.
1: Yeah, I, it was. And I, I want to say the rec room did something similar. So I don't know if they kind of uh, took that idea from them. I have no idea how that worked out. But um, that's uh, so Jenny stood there the whole night saying, you're here to see Stopper, tell me you're here to see Stopper, tell me you're here to right, see Stopper, because right. most people don't give a fuck who they're there to see. They're just there to see bands.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: The Samba Reptile became like a, at least every Friday and Saturday night, you just went there.
0: Well, and that's, know? yeah, that's exactly what it you was. always knew a
1: band was going to be playing
0: you, that you like. You knew every once in a while... Like you knew your buddies were playing or you'd make right. an effort, but it was the place where you could just go just to see bands. Right. Uh and, and I think that's an unusual thing because, you know, media over the years has fed us this idea of the club the kids hang out at just mm-hmm. to watch whatever happens to be going on. But that's to a certain extent, that's a false ideal. Right. But the somber reptile was that you just went there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, I want to uh, let's focus on Jenny for a minute, because you get, uh, you know, watching the movie, you get a feel that she is definitely one of the driving forces behind the band. But talk about yes. that a little bit. Uh, talk about her role in getting the band over.
1: Well, unfortunately, part of the two and a half hours I edited an hour out, it is now 90 minutes. Part of that was losing two separate segments about Jenny. But you Um,
0: still, you still, in what's there, I still definitely got the feel that she was a power behind the band. Like that's, that's still there.
1: She handled, um, she knew nothing musically and she was younger than all of us and which is funny that she had her shit together more than any of us.
0: (laughs) Well, that's, um, that's women though.
1: Exactly. I guess that's exactly what it is. She was, uh, she had come here to go to art school. Uh, she had come here from Tennessee. And her and Mark had met and started dating. And once, uh, Stopper began, Stopper had a run for a year with its original lineup. Well, sort of. They had, they were like the spinal tap, uh, bass players kind of thing. They, (laughs) bass players exploded on stage and shit like that. They had about a
0: dozen of them. Well, right. And we should briefly mention that you, you were not originally, like, you weren't one of the original guys. Like, you stepped in. I played
1: the very first practice with them. Oh
0: really? I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, but David did not want me in there because I was in Rounder Spock.
0: Oh. Um,
1: so that they got uh, Joey Manning, a different guy, to play with them, and then he was replaced by Kim Bowen, who was in the Hinkleys, and it just goes on and
0: on and on. It, but, that incestuous Atlanta yes,
1: rock scene, exactly. Um, but yeah, once uh, so you got a year of that, and then David and Pat, the guitarist, move away, and then David comes back, and we all reform, and I'm in the band at this point. When, once I joined the band, Mark has just started dating Jenny, and I think by virtue of her being, uh, having a bit of a go-getter kind of attitude, and watching these four morons, you know, drown, she just kind of took over.
0: <laughs> She's that, like, these idiots aren't going to manage yeah, anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, and we weren't. She was right. If not for her, we we wouldn't have done much, because uh, the Pins proved that once she left, we couldn't manage ourselves, because, you know, the Pins is our band after Stopper, Mark right. and I went on to do that and she managed that. And once those two went their separate ways, the pins did nothing. <laughs> yeah. So we proved that we couldn't get along without her. <laughs> but um anyway, she uh she was the one that just kept us on track. Uh and that was part I we talked earlier about how Stopper seemed to, you know, get all these opportunities and everything, and part of that is Jenny. She's the one that kept us doing the merchandise stuff. So if nothing else, our name was always out there. There were patches, there were stickers, shirts, all the things that the other bands weren't doing as much. Right. Um, she stayed on top of all that. She collected the money. If a club owner, you know, got a little, uh, loud, she got loud back. Uh, she, we didn't have to deal with any of that. She handled everything. And to the chagrin at times of some of the members, there were fights between her and other people or between Mark and other people within the band and stuff over you know she doesn't get to tell me that blah 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 and you know
0: and and it's you know what she's given us these opportunities she's making us this money so yes she does
1: that's exactly how i always felt about it i behaved and just did what i was told when it came to that stuff i mean i like i said earlier i'm kind of a realist i understand what you're going for i i understand the logical uh Direction we're trying to head in here and I see that you're trying to point us in that direction. If you're trying to point us in the other direction, I'll fight you, but she was, she had our best interests at heart and I knew that. So I just let, you know, whatever she said, I'd go along with it. And she was also smart enough. A lot of the, the, uh, bands of that era were just playing the somber reptile, like almost exclusively. Right. She, she, uh, and we, I guess were smart enough to play other places regularly. We didn't just play the somber reptile. we played all over Atlanta,
0: well, and it was you know at the time, I'm sure it was very easy to fall into that well, these guys like us we can we can do this thing, we'll just mm-hmm. stick here i mean it, it it's typical again, anybody that does creative stuff, it's very easy to stay within your comfort zone,
1: yeah, and it was it was our clubhouse. they let us have the run of the place. we didn't pay for beer, hardly ever, yeah, but um. I think more importantly, though, we had been mistreated for quite some time at other clubs. You know, they acted like they were doing us a favor, letting us play. Whereas the Sombre Reptile was very welcome and opening and they'd feed you and, you know, oh, hey, they were like your family. They were your friends, you know. And the other clubs did not treat you that way. The other clubs acted like you were a nuisance. And could you please get your shit off the stage quickly? We have another band coming up.
0: Well, and I think I think that's a venue trick. I think that's all revenue related. I think that's all you know, uh, to a certain level, mm-hmm. we make all of these guys feel like shit. So we don't have to worry as much about compensation. We don't have to worry as much about how we treat them, even mm-hmm. though they're providing entertainment for our patrons. If we right. treat them a certain way, we don't really have to worry as much about them. Right. And that That's uh, which, granted. I'm sure it's nationwide, but in my experience, mm-hmm. anyway, that's a, that's a classic Atlanta venue trick.
1: Yeah. Um, we, we
0: make them feel like shit so they don't expect anything from us.
1: Most places I've played outside of Atlanta too. <laughs> were like right. that. But yeah, especially Atlanta, specific places, uh, the rec room and the masquerade especially, I hated playing.
0: You, they, they always make always you, like they make you feel like they're doing you a favor by letting you on the stage. Right. Even though, like, even though you're up there selling beer, you know, I, yeah. that's, 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 that's what they the time,
1: do. It wasn't even a person involved with the decision making of us being there, you know, some right. sound guy or right, right, you know, right. some other random jackass that was oh, making
0: you feel that way, dude. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know all about the sound guys at the masquerade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: you'd, so. think, uh, you'd think for as uh, much as they uh, much grief as they gave people, they'd be better at their
0: jobs. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right about that. <laughs> uh so towards the end. Hmm. With, uh, you know, there's a, there's a big span of time between the end of Stopper because I definitely want to focus on Dave because Dave is uh, to a certain extent the meat and potatoes of the documentary. You know, there, yes. there are a lot of people involved with the story, but he's he's kind of the guy that by the end of the show you're like, man, what? He's he's our sympathetic character.
1: Right, he's the, he's the story arc that we're really following, Right, you don't quite, you're not aware of that until that final act, really, that this whole time we've kind of been following his path.
0: Right, and, and it is interesting that you presented it that way, because it's, uh, it's very much a family story for the first two-thirds of mm-hmm. the film, and then that last third, it, uh, you know it gets heavy, and there's no way around it getting heavy, so in 96, Stopper's essentially done. Yes. Uh, and then years later, we come back to a a very different, and and this is another heartbreaking portion of the the film, is talking about, you know, just thinking about it right now, you guys talking about how much fun Dave was, and how he was essentially kind of brought into the band because he was the life of the party, he was a fun guy to be around, everybody liked it, you know, enjoyed it being around him, and over those years he transformed uh because of the drugs because of the addiction yes. because of the desire to escape from from reality i guess became a very different person and then we catch up with him uh you know over a decade later almost 20 years later yeah in a very different and heartbreaking spot and i i, I don't want to give away the end of the movie because it's a, it's an incredible story uh but now We've got uh, Dave in prison. Yes. Which, how much of that was the impetus for putting this film together?
1: Well, there's this weird uh, chain of events that happened where um, I was looking. I've kind of been involved in documentary stuff uh, through like cable networks I've worked for and things like that. For quite a while. I've always been a documentary fan. Uh, well you let's, know, I let's watching hoop dreams when I was young.
0: For everybody that's listening, uh, let let's talk a little bit. Maybe we should talk about you for a moment. Hell yes. Um what my favorite subject. <laughs> so yeah, you just said hoop dreams inspired you. Uh what what do you do now? What do you want to do?
1: Um I, I pretty much do what I want to do.
0: <laughs> that is, that's the best thing that I can ever hear on this show.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I, that's what I do. I shoot, I edit, I direct. That's how I make my money. And, i you um, might have
0: won an award or so, right?
1: Yeah. I, I've gotten, uh, two Emmy nominations. I've won one of them. Um, I, uh, gotten five tellies, uh, I don't, Various awards and stuff. I don't know. They, um, you yeah, know, we use the Emmy to to keep the kitchen door open. You know how it is. <laughs> You're right, stop. right. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, it, it, you know, it's – so, I mean, that's – and so I'm kind of – I'm not a newcomer to the documentary thing. I, I always liked documentaries ever since I was young. So doing this – I already had, uh, projects lined up before this that kept falling through. and uh, the, There were three of them. Stoppers the third. The first one being I was, uh, working on a documentary about the, the closed down asylums in Milledgeville. Mm-hmm. And I guess based on my Emmy, the director, who was kind of a, he was a, uh, he's this fucking asshole. Can I say that?
0: Yes, can I say you absolutely asshole?
1: can. Can I say asshole? Okay, well, I don't, we, I don't, fucking is okay. We, he was a fucking moron.
0: Fucking is okay. We'd rather you not say asshole.
1: Oh uh, yeah, yeah. See, that's that's what I was worried about. I didn't want yeah. to hurt anybody's feelings. Yes. Um, but anyway, he was he was kind of a dildo, <laughs> and he um. So based on Miami, he got full access. The state granted him full access to these closed down asylums, these buildings that had been abandoned for a long time, and you know I guess the state liked that. And you know we're gonna have something cool. and uh, I ended up having to leave it because as I mentioned before, he was a fucking dildo. and I didn't want to work with him anymore. Sure. So that fell through. Then I was uh, I was still looking for a project and I got mixed in with a Metroplex little five points um, kind of the underground Atlanta scene of the 70s and 80s documentary, right. right. And for one reason or another, that just didn't come to fruition. Um, I believe the young lady is still working on it. Uh, she's still getting stuff together. And, you know, so I'm kind of excited to see that. She had the trailer at the beginning of the Stop Her Live DVD that we had. Uh, but anyway, when that fell through, I was like, well, shit, I need something. And Ian called me and said, look, I want to raise money to help Dave's mom out with some of the legal fees that uh that she's incurred through his his battles which are the ending of the documentary and uh do you have any ideas do you want to help out or anything and i hadn't talked to ian since the 90s so oh, wow really i hadn't talked to him or dave since the 90s and this is we're talking about 2012 yeah yeah so um I said, uh, I was like, well, yeah, I've still got these old master tapes we never released, and yeah, you know, he and Mark had completely forgotten we even recorded those things.
0: That's what—that's one thing I wanted to bring up is mm-hmm. the amount of footage that you have from those days is really impressive. Because it's a I mean, miracle, you know. Nowadays, everything is recorded, but back yep. back in the mid '90s, like who was thinking to record punk shows?
1: Nothing. It, there was when we began this. There was literally nothing. I had, um, I had one tape and it was the other thing he wanted to do, which was sell these masters, sell the, uh, sell, uh, CDs. And he had this one tape of a show of David getting naked and going crazy. Right. He wanted to sell that. That was all we had in terms of live footage. And, um, and I told told him, it looks like shit. I, I don't want to sell that. Why don't we do a seven to 10 minute documentary to go along with that? We'll sell like for 15 or 20 bucks. We'll give you a CD, some stickers, um that live show and then these uh this little you know seven to ten minute documentary about the band and when i shot his he was the first interview in march of 2012 and like i said we shot about six to eight hours and i realized really quick there was no way i was going to be able to do a seven to ten minute documentary right so it just led to where we are now and as you were just saying there's a lot of footage and I, that's all i had was that that piece of tape and slowly as i was going along I would get to a point where I'd think, you know, I'm editing and I'm like, well, there's, I can't do anything else. I have no more footage. I have no more pictures. Every time somebody would pop out of the woodwork and say, Hey, you know what? I found this, uh, v- this old VHS tape of uh, us just wandering around the somber reptile all night. We just gave the camera to somebody and they just walked around and just shot stuff.
0: It's amazing some of the stuff you've got. Like the yeah. the shot of uh Dave sitting at the bar. Dave just threw up on himself. Like mm-hmm. who how who um, it's amazing somebody yep. captured that. That
1: was yeah, that that's all that footage was just crazy and that's not even like the original tape. I can uh it looks like somebody dubbed it because every now and again it plays and then it just stops. And I guess they were using a camera as like their their play deck because it'll stop and I guess the lens turns on and you just see like somebody's living room for about five minutes <laughs> and there's nothing in there. There's nobody in there. It's just like a fireplace and stuff. And then it cuts back to, you know, Dave running around in the bathroom or doing whatever it is he's doing.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it, it we were flying by the seat of our pants on a lot of this stuff, just trying to find any little piece of footage and, Early on I actually hit up WSB. Um, there was a uh, there was a news story they did on um, on herbal ecstasy. And what happened was the final weekend the Sombre Reptile was open, they came out to shoot a story about the Somber Reptile closing and they uh, they asked Big Dave who was the best band to shoot and he said, Well shoot round your Spock, they're fun. So they shot, showed up and shot us, uh, WSB, uh, channel 2 came and shot our footage of us playing and while they were shooting, Jay and I decided it would be a funny idea to take our pants off. Sure. So we played pantsless. <laughs> so fast forward and then, uh, within a week they had us all come back and it was like, all of us uh me and Mikey Brennan and James Worthington and like a group of like 10 or 12 of uh I guess the who's who of that uh dopey crowd right and we sat on a, on the stage and they interviewed us and uh and went through this whole thing and you know talking about what we wanted to do with our lives and all that kind of you know grown-ups talking to uh kids that look crazy kind of stuff yeah yeah we've all seen it but um they didn't use that for that story what they did was they did a drug special, and they used that footage for their drug special. <laughs> oh. So I called WSB trying to buy that footage, but it would have been so expensive for me to use it that it just wasn't worth it in the right, end. Right, right. Um, I I believe they wanted two thousand dollars, and that did not give me full rights. It gave me the rights for like I don't know two years or something like that. Then I'd have oh. to pay them again or something. You yeah, know, that's it was ridiculous. So and you know, it is what it is. Uh if I were doing a full on sombre reptile thing, I would definitely put that money in. But right, right. for stopper but, it wasn't the focus. stopper. Right, wasn't that wasn't there. the
0: point. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So um which is funny because I've been uh Warwickton asked me and I actually had a uh I had a meeting with Kike, the other owner of the Somber Reptile years ago uh when I first started the Stopper thing and he won, we had lunch and discussed once I finished Stopper doing a somber Reptile documentary. And, um, and, you know, he was, he was totally into it. And at the time I was, I really thought I'd be done by 2013. Um, here we are at 2016 and I'm not really in the mood to do it. <laughs> <Or> <laughs> it. just sent me an email the other day asking if I'd be interested in doing something like that. And, and not right now, maybe in the future, but I've, I need to take a break from...
0: Well, you've essentially been reliving that life for the past four years. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's... I feel like I kind of told the story of the somber reptile to some degree, so yeah. I, I yeah. don't have it in me at the moment. If what? I hear some new something, maybe we'll tackle it. I don't know.
0: So in 2012, uh, you guys got back together, had a benefit show for Stopper Dave. Right. Uh, which there are several different efforts underway to help his mom out with legal expenses. Uh, he's selling... His art online. Yes. Uh, you guys had the benefit show, then there's, the, you know, the documentary to raise awareness and also just to tell this fantastic story, uh, fantastic and tragic story. Uh, how was it in 2012 getting back together with those guys? Cause you, you had, as you said, you hadn't really had a lot of contact over the years. What, how did that work?
1: Um, I have to, uh, I have to confess, and I've said this many times over the last few years, the documentary's about the wrong thing. It really should have been about this reunion. It, it wasn't easy. Yeah. <laughs> thus, thus there were no further shows. Because that was a discussion. That was a plan actually. Everybody kept asking us at the time, uh, like when Creative Loafing interviewed us, you know, are you going to do more or is this it? I said no, we're not going to do more. But we secretly kind of had it in our head. We'd do, um, we'd do a show in Athens, a benefit show to raise money. Yeah. There was, at one point, there was a discussion of San Francisco. There was, uh, Florida. There were multiple places that we had kind of talked about and nothing was concrete yet. Athens was the only concrete one. Um, but it was, uh, once we, by the time we got done with the show, it just, it was obvious it wasn't really going to work out. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of pulled the plug on all that. There's, there were too many, there's a lot of things that I can't get into, um, just out of respect, but well, there there's a lot of
0: issues. Absolutely. I mean, and and that's any endeavor like this with multiple personalities involved and with multiple, uh, you know, just different life experiences and stuff there. There's, yeah. there's going to be trouble, man, especially as we get older, you know, the older I get, the more focused I am on what, i need to do not just you know for me for my right. family for whatever how i'm going to spend my time you know mm-hmm. a- as we get older time becomes so much more precious well, and it's if- just it's it's you you have to get more realistic about what you're doing and how you spend that time it,
1: that's exactly right and it was um part of it also part of the issue was that not a lot had really changed over the there sure, were still kind of sure. the same issues that had been going on back then, so it just got to be too much to deal with. Um, yeah. and it, frankly it was breaking me. Uh, what's funny about this whole, the, the documentary, all that, we never did GoFunds, GoFundMe's or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, everything, I financed everything we did. And uh, part of that was when we started doing this, you know, I started, I'd have to front the money for everything. When you do any kind of band, somebody's gotta buy a t-shirt. Somebody has to right. buy the CDs. Right, the patches, the stickers, whatever. And it was starting, it was quickly putting me in a hole right around Christmas time. So I took on a religious show, a weekly show, and basically, uh, Jesus financed Stopper and our endeavors for, uh, <laughs> it paid for the documentary, it paid for everything. And, you know, up until, I don't know, a year or two ago, I was, uh, still doing this stuff. And eventually it was like, all right, well, I paid for everything. I can move on now with my oh, life. Right, right, Thanks, right. Thanks God. So now
0: Mm -hmm. it's 2016 and the whole reason for this episode, aside from just my interest in the subject matter, but you have coming up at the end of January, uh, let's put over the premiere.
1: Yes. Yep. We are, uh, January 30th. We're doing the premiere at the Plaza Theater and that will, uh, that will be the official showing. We've had, uh, at a festival or two I think so far but um this this will be the first Atlanta showing.
0: Well and you guys already have won some awards for this show or uh, for this movie.
1: We, yes, we got the 2015 Silver Spotlight Award um from somebody I don't remember. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, yeah. We were nominated for best feature and nominated for best editing from uh Top Indie Film Awards or something. Um not to you know, it, it, I'm very appreciative. I'm well, just you, forgetting I, all the names of these things.
0: <laughs> yeah, and 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 that's you know, once you get into this kind of development, this kind of project, it does enter into a larger world. I mean, this this now has sort of moved beyond your personal experience. This is now part of uh, sort of the cinematic world. It's it's right. out there. You you've thrown your baby out. So there's there's it's kind of on its own to a certain extent and there's only so much, you know, you invested your life blood into it, but what you've put out there is what's out there.
1: Yeah. And that's, it's kind of a scary thought in a weird way, you know, cause I look at it as, you know, these are my friends and this is my, uh, this is my gift to the Atlanta scene or whatever the case may be, I guess. But then I start thinking about it in a, in the larger spectrum, this is out there for other people to analyze and other people to take apart and dissect and you know, there is a part of, you know, as a musician or anything like that, you, you kind of build up a thick skin and you don't worry about what people think, but there is a part of you that still worries about what people think.
0: Oh, any, you know what I mean? Anybody that's doing anything creative, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun and part of the punk aesthetic really to yeah. say, I don't give a shit what other people think, but anybody putting stuff out there, sure you do. Course you do. Like that, yeah. There there's no way around that. Uh and there you wouldn't is... do it if you didn't care what other people right. thought. Exactly. You want it to be received. You want it to uh to to have you know, wow, that I'm impressed that you put this time into this thing and put this thing together. And you're right. This you know, normally a documentary filmmaker is taking you know, it may be subject matter they're fond of. It may mm-hmm. be something they've been interested in for, for their whole lives. But more often than not, they're not personally invested in what they're doing. And you, uh, you were there. This is your story as much as it is anybody else's. And that to a certain extent, you're kind of pinning your heart on your sleeve and throwing it out there for everybody to see. It's a very different thing from your typical documentary.
1: Yeah, it's, um, well, it, it does. It's funny watching myself because it's like I'm watching one of the characters. Yes. It doesn't look like me to me. You know what I mean? And I had to separate myself that way. Otherwise I would drive myself nuts of, well, look at me. I'm picking my nose in that shot or whatever. whatever it is, but I'm saying something good, but you know, you just have to kind of, uh, ignore all those kinds of things. Um, it is, you know, it is what it is. It's not everybody gets to, uh, go back and tell their own story. It's kind of like that Chappelle show episode where he talks about, uh, where he talks about, uh, doing his own movie and it show it cuts the yeah. him being born and he's got a giant dick <laughs> right, and you know he's right. like i gotta tell my story here <laughs> that's kind of you know that's true Yeah, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah and there the, yeah, i would imagine there had to be uh, some points along the line that temptation to be like well i was the only guy with my shit together and uh, right. if it wasn't for me that band wouldn't have been anything
1: well, yeah, and there were things I edited out where I felt like it was almost somebody else said something about me, but I felt like it was too self-serving in a way. Right, right, right. Um, and there was also one of the difficult parts of doing all this was I I've more or less know the truth. I mean, the 90s are kind of hazy, but I more or less remember what went on. And there were some things that were said in interviews, and th- this is a huge problem throughout, where I would interview people and they would say things I knew were not true. Right. Um, Or this happened constantly. One person would tell the story this way. Then one person would tell it a totally different way. (laughs) Very opposite. And it would, the one person would tell it. So the one, the other guy looked bad. And then that guy would tell it. So the other guy looked bad. And I would, uh, I would have to, if it was, if I knew it not to be true, I did not include it. If it's, but there were moments where like Mark is telling a story and he's got it his way, and he's saying, well, Ian did this, that, and the other, and then Jenny jumps in and says, yeah, I remember Ian did it this way and the other, I would let Ian pop in and say, well, I don't remember it that way, and that's that's not how, uh, and this is the way I remember it being. I would try to let people defend themselves somewhat if I felt like there was something kind of
0: divisive amongst uh, the people I interviewed. Was there a point where you looked at something, or was there a story that you looked at where you were like, you know what, this is too the the point of view on this is too diverse from the different parties and it's just too much i can't i can't put it in because it's Constantly. too yeah <laughs> <Constantly>. <laughs> it was, like it's it, not even worth like this story can't be told because it's just too much
1: yeah well yeah there were stories like that um where i felt like again i it would make somebody into a a villain, right? Almost.
0: And and um, you know what? And you did a very good job of that because there there are no villains in this. Everybody's very sympathetic. Uh, even even Dave, who yeah, uh, you know how he went down is really tough. But yeah. in the end, he's still a sympathetic character. He's still spoken of by uh, the people in the movie in a fond way, in a sympathetic way, like, uh, very cause he could have been vilified easily. And, and it's impressive that you didn't do that just to have like a bad guy for the piece.
1: Oh, absolutely. It was, it was tough to, to not do that. And honestly, my two worries were Ian and Mark. I didn't want to make them into villains at parts. And I remember, I didn't think of Mark at first, but, uh, I think, Either Mark or Jenny won. I think Jenny pointed out that Mark felt like he looked kind of villainish, like he's the one that got David into drugs. Right. Which, he, he was there, he was a part of it, but David did drugs because David wanted to do drugs.
0: Right. Nobody, nobody held him down and put a needle in his arm or right. put pills in his mouth or whatever. And that's, that's an interesting thing. You know, over the years, as I've seen more stories of abuse and, uh, and whatever, it it's tragic, but it seems like a lot of times you've got the guy who can handle his shit and the guy who can't handle his shit yeah uh you you've got because i i've over and over again whether it's in movies in wrestling in films uh in music whatever the case may be, so often you've got the guy who is an addict who mm. is essentially a junkie but he can handle his shit so he doesn't get into trouble yeah, that happens a lot. And, and, you know, unfortunately, you've got the guy who, who hangs out with him and, and can't.
1: Yeah, he can't, he can't hang. He goes down that path and it's, it's sad to watch, but it is the reality of the, all, the whole drug culture is like that though. There are, there are those that just, they're like cockroaches. They will survive anything and they will keep on chugging and nothing will ever harm them. But then there's the segment of that population that, they, they're going to fall and you can see it early. You can get, this is not going to go well for that particular person. And you know, to start watching for them, but it's too late by the time you notice it.
0: Well, and also there's a point where, you know, you want to help your buddies, but, but you also, you can't, you can't get dragged down that path. Right. And, And it's a, it's a very dangerous line to have to tread
1: and that was part of leaving stopper i think um, even pat when pat left he left specifically because he saw the drugs were going to drag this band down and he said right. i don't want to be a part of that anymore um, and he left the state he and, just and kudos to him for away. seeing it
0: so early on too like that's, yeah. uh, that and he is, even he, tried
1: to rescue dave yeah he talked him into moving away but dave came back um, but even like i left stopper And they brought, uh, they brought little Shane in to replace me, but they kind of threw him in really quick. I remember they played their first show and I thought as a showing of solidarity I would show up to, uh, to support them, but it felt like the show was really fast. Like I left and within two weeks was a show. And I remember I was, uh, roadieing with the tone deaf pig dogs up to, uh, Scumfest. I think that was in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so I was already on the north side with James. And I was like, "Hey, you know, Stoppers playing their first show without me tonight. Why don't we go check them out?" At that point, I was bandless. You know, I was just floating around, feeling right. nothing. And um, so we went there to watch. And the poor guy had only been in the band for a couple of weeks. He didn't know all the songs. I had to get on stage and finish the show for him. <laughs> and I felt, you know, I felt bad for the guy because he got thrust into this thing really fast. And I don't think he he probably didn't even know what he was getting himself into.
0: Right. They, um, they were probably just kind of kind of trying to maintain momentum
1: right and he was you know he was uh i'm sure doing the best he could uh but there was no way to keep up with that band they were just they were too far gone the relationships were too far blown out to be repaired it was just they were limping along at that point
0: so before we wrap this thing up Mm -hmm. uh you've probably got tons and tons and tons of stories but what is one fond memory you have of your time with the band uh like just one of the funnier, more ridiculous situations that you found yourself in just from being in an Atlanta punk band.
1: Well, there there's so many little mini moments that I remember. Um first getting in the band and hanging out with Mark and watching his uh his big fat ass get on a uh uh oh shit what do you call those things you bounce on um the bounce house or trampoline? Stick, oh, what? watching him on a pogo stick <laughs> bouncing down his driveway because somebody left it in his yard or something we were in atlanta he lived on hemp hill road at that point uh right off north side and he got it in his head he was going to be able to get on this thing and he bounced down the driveway until the thing collapsed just bent out from under oh, him holy
0: shit that's amazing <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah, it was pretty nice to watch. It was, I mean, but those little moments like that, there's just tons of these hilarious little moments of just stupid stuff like that. Uh, seeing a light pop on on the second floor of the Somber Reptile and having never realized that there was even a second story, story to the Somber Reptile. <laughs> And climbing the uh, – there's a uh, drainage pipe that went down the side of the building, and I had a few beers in me. I decided I wanted to see what was in it. So I scaled the side of the building up to see what was in there. And it was somebody – I don't remember if it was Dan or Dave, but one of them was taking a shit. It was a bathroom.
0: <laughs> that was not worth the trip. No,
1: no, it really wasn't. And it was really hard getting back down once I'd done gone up.
0: Well, um, and, and that's a big part of – that the scene of being in a band of, of especially of being in a punk band is that family thing that it's more than just getting on stage and making music together you guys are a unit you share experiences it's more than just we're going to write some songs and play them
1: yeah and part of it it was more than just being in the band it was part of uh i think jay says it in the documentary but it was part of being something that was important to more lives than just your own yes yes and you know, going to um, just a million tiny memories of like round your Spock recording, and uh, Jeremy from the Ignored helped us record. He's the one that helped us get the studio gig, and the Oswalds showing up just to hang out with us while we recorded. I borrowed Mikey's bass to record six 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 extra evil. Um, our second studio session, the Ignored coming to hang out with us while we were recorded there. Uh, we all we made a yearly uh, trip up to Helen to camp out. And all the punks, a bunch of the punks from that scene would all go and we'd just go drinking in the woods or um, having a kickball game, um, touring with the pig dogs. I mean, you know, there's just all these little moments of just remembering all the friends I had from that scene. And even now, when we uh, played a uh, film festival in Mobile, Alabama, Carson works in a bar in uh, Mobile, Alabama. Yeah. So I got to go hang out with him for a little while, yes. you know, just to this day, you know, 20, 30 years later, I still see these people and, you know. They're still my buddies. Carson, it's, you know, it's who, a good feeling.
0: Carson, who would definitely be identified as another local troublemaker.
1: Yes, <laughs> most certainly
0: that guy. Shit. Well, let's. Uh, where can we find Stopper stuff online? What's the Twitter? What's the website? Where can we follow everything that's going on?
1: Uh, Stopper is, uh, in terms of websites, the only thing we have at the moment is the Facebook page, which is. Facebook.com slash stopper movie. Um, we are looking for digital distribution right now. The, uh, uh, the executive producer, Jason Wynn, is, uh, working on that at the moment. So hopefully it'll be on Netflix soon. Uh, we're still playing festivals. We've got the premiere coming up. So we're, uh, hopefully it'll be in the living room soon enough for everybody.
0: And, uh, the big January 30th at the Plaza Theater, the big premiere, uh, you- have a chance to go and sit in a theater and watch this fascinating story with a bunch of other people, uh, who, who is many of whom lived it. Uh, (laughs) and you know, keep an eye out, follow along. Uh, You can go to reverb nation uh, and look up stopper and see the trailer for the movie and follow along on Facebook and check it out. Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this portion of your life. You know, not only from back in the day, but the past several years that you've spent retelling the story.
1: Thank you, sir. I appreciate the opportunity. You're a uh, you're a
0: saint. I do what I can. I know. Hey, 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 seriously, check out "Stopper: The Rise and Fall of the Bastard Squad." It is. I wasn't kidding when I said it's powerful. It really is. i will make you feel some stuff, uh, and not all of it is nice you'll have some thoughts about mortality about uh, decision making about the people in your life people you've known in your life it it speaks I think to a wider variety of people than just the the punk scene so I wasn't going to mention this but we're 10 episodes away from episode 100 which is a milestone for not just because I've done 100 episodes but because I've done 100 episodes now, because I never intended for this show to be weekly, and yet it has been for the past year now, because I've been very fortunate with interviews, with topics, with whatever. So I'm thinking about something special for the 100th episode, but I guess I need to get my ass in gear if I'm going to do anything. I will keep you posted. Please remember to check out the Needless Things podcast group on Facebook and the Needless Things page on Facebook. If you want to talk to me, I'm L Phantasmas, that's E-L space P-H-A-N-T-A-S-M-A-S, because they would not let me call myself Phantom Troublemaker. Go on there, send me a message, send me a message at phantomtroublemaker at gmail.com. If you've got any questions about the show, if you want to come on the show, if you have suggestions, whatever, I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know. Let us be as interactive as possible. And you can find the Needless Things podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Please rate us there. Share us all over the Internet. Spread us around. There's plenty of this to go around, as you can uh, notice from the episode lengths. But I only do it because I know you guys want it. And you know what? I love it.